will take a shot downfield. Remember that for your highlight show tonight. Brucon to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! A snap gets by Nip. He has to chase it inside the 10. He dives on it. It is loose and it is picked up by Jacob Callier. Callier's got it to four yard line. A turnover and the freshman with another big play for Colorado. Oh, there's Lindsay. He's gone. Lindsay's gone. Montez with all kinds of time. Here's back, rifles it downfield. Shea Fields on the left shoulder makes the grab. Runs away from a defender at the 10. Into the end zone. Big play, Shea. Touchdown. Touchdown, Colorado. Welcome into a new Buff Stampede radio out of Munster Tiger Publisher, buffstampede.com. Here with fan correspondent Tyler Ziskin. It's been a little more than a week and a half since our last episode. So we're going to recap the USC game a little bit and obviously look ahead to the Utah game. Tyler, it comes down to this. They need this win in Salt Lake City to gain bowl eligibility. There's going to be a big difference between how the season's viewed if they get a win in Salt Lake or if they get a loss out there. Yeah. Uh, we actually, I think, talked about this on one of the first podcasts of the year that it was possible that this would maybe be a bowl eligibility situation for both of these teams. So it's kind of interesting to see it play out. Obviously, both teams are disappointed with being 5-6, and six, I would say. But here we are. Whoever loses this game will be the only team in the Pac-12 South not to make a bowl. There's a lot riding on the line. Uh, it seems like they've maybe been a little bit more highly viewed than Colorado since they've joined the league, but they haven't really ever broken out. Haven't won the division. The only team, I believe, at this point that hasn't won the division in the Pac-12 South. Uh, so it's... Interesting little rivalry. I don't think we really hate each other, but it just always seems like the games are close. So uh, it, it's always always a battle, and it hasn't really seemed like home field has really helped out either team in the in the series either. So I don't, there's a lot of different ways it'll play out. They get the sixth win. Is 2017 a successor? Had they struggled enough in some of those games and just not passed the eyeball test enough to where um, even a win there would make you look back to this 2017 season and not feel overly joyous about it i mean i think really it will come down to the bowl game if you find a way to win your bowl game finish above 500 people will feel a little bit better about it and it obviously helps the momentum of the program back-to-back bowl games is something that you can use a few years down the line no one will care what your record was if that's what you're talking about you know so yeah i mean it's obviously big you get another month's worth of practice for a lot of these young guys a lot of guys who are going to be coming in and you know taking reps next year from seniors especially on offense so to get those guys as ready as possible is big news Odds makers don't think Colorado's going to win this regular season finale. They're ten and a half point underdogs. We'll talk more about that line later. Um, so if the odds makers are right and Colorado loses this game, how concerned are you about the the direction of things with, with this program? Um, not really, honestly. Um, I knew there could be some issues this year, and I didn't expect us to go five and seven, obviously, but. I still think moving forward with the direction of the program, next year's team should be pretty good. 
you obviously have five home games. You have winnable non-conference schedule next year with Nebraska struggling as well. Uh, CSU loses a ton of guys. I think if they aren't able to find a way to get six wins next year, then you have to really be concerned about this program. Okay. Now, I think from a recruiting standpoint, you could be pretty concerned. It, we'll go, again, where this is a topic we're going to touch more on, but you have basically more than half the commits right now that are being poached by at least another Power 5 program. Um, if you can't get that bowl eligibility, I, I think you're in danger of losing some of those kids. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we will lose some guys. I mean, Mac has always found a way to get guys even late that have really helped this program. So, obviously, it's not the ideal scenario you want to be in. You want to get the guys you were in on all year long. But until I see the finished product, I won't freak out too much, I guess, in the recruiting trail. Okay. Obviously, we've got to talk some men's basketball on the show as well with CU winning the Paradise Jam on Sunday. We're going to split up our mailbags into two segments, obviously with the football topics and then later with the basketball. Stick it with football, Tyler. We haven't talked since that USC game. The Buffs outscored USC 24-18 in the second half, but they had dug themselves a 20-0 hole in the first half. Philip Lindsay limited to 68 yards on 20 carries on senior day. Um, it just was kind of a tale of two halves. You can't dig yourself a 20 to nothing hole against USC. Yeah, that pick six at the end of the first half was really brutal. The team just finds ways to shoot themselves in the foot all the time. Like they're third and long, can't make a play. Pass goes right into your hands on defense, can't catch it. You know, get a get a third down stop. There's a penalty. Hit the quarterback late or something like that. This team is there's just they just can't make that one play to really change the momentum of the game, and it's been that way all year long. And really goes back to us just not being able to force turnovers. If you want to be a good defense at the end of the year, you got to be able to turn the ball over. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how many yards you give up. Eventually, you're going to give up points if you give guys drives every single time down, and you can never turn the ball back to your offense. I've defended Brian Lindgren at times just because I think it's easy for the offensive coordinator to be a lightning rod. and you know Everybody plays Madden football growing up, so they think they can call plays better than the offense coordinator. But I thought it interesting, after the game, Steven Montez admitted that he didn't think they took enough deep shots against USC early in the game. He said they were playing all the underneath stuff. Uh, it was kind of interesting to hear the starting quarterback criticize the play calling. Yeah, I don't know if it's really a play calling so much as it just he saw something out there that wasn't getting exploited. I mean, I guess in hindsight, it, it, he's he is definitely – I don't think that was his point, I guess is what I'm trying to say. He wasn't okay. trying to criticize Brian Lindgren. I think he just started to get more confident on those deep throws, and that's kind of his – obviously arm strength is what he can do, and that's how you get Shea involved. And once you get Shea involved, usually the offense really opens up. So I think that was more along the lines of what he was trying to say. He was also confused on the final play. He thought it was first down. I thought it was as well. Yeah, yeah. you could say he was confused, but I think a lot of us were confused. The guy, well, to my right, where I was watching the game, definitely called first down. The marker got switched over, and then they decided it was fourth down. So hard to blame Steven there. That's just the refs being Pac-12 refs, which is, you know, standard. I mean, at the end of the day, that's not what cost them the football game. No, I mean, yeah, obviously it would have put them down seven. You would have had to have gotten gotten lucky with an onside kick or something in order to get back into the game. It's not the reason they lost. The first half is the reason they lost. But it would have been, you know, that would have been nice to see this team really fight back and make it actually a very interesting ball game if that had we had found a way to get in the end zone there. Drew Lewis and Rick Gamboa became the 20th tandem in CU history that both post triple digits and tackles for a season. The last duo to do that was Jordan Dizon and Thaddeus Washington, Back in 2006, I was doing the research for that. Just looking at Dizon's 
total uh, tackle totals. He had 297 tackles as a junior and senior. Yeah, he was pretty ridiculous. <laughs> uh, I still think he probably should have won the buckets that year. Uh, it's too bad to see him tear his ACL pretty much as soon as he got into the NFL. Yeah. It would have been nice to see if he could have translated, even though he was undersized. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, honestly, at this point, I think the linebackers have been have gotten too much flack from the fan base about the issues on this team. I mean, it's hard to really do your job if the D-line in front of you is getting smoked off the ball every single time. In terms of uh, other standouts in that USC game, uh, Jawan Winfrey had a, a breakout day. It seems like he's really worked off the rust from that ACL injury. 163 yards receiving two touchdowns. His double move yeah. and cutback on that 79-yard touchdown pass was a, a thing of beauty. Uh, was it Jack Jones? Jack for Jones. Well, I think it was a five-star, right? Or at least it was a very high. Yeah, yeah. He was very highly recruited one way or the other. He almost came out of his shoes a couple oh, yeah. of times on that yeah, play. Was, I saw a few pro scouts uh, put together a gif of that, which is interesting. I mean, I will say this. Winfrey has been inconsistent, and he's definitely not fully recovered once the season started this year. And obviously, he looks a lot better. That move, an unhealthy guy doesn't make that move. He's got great footwork, and that's always been the case. That's kind of his strength. Um, he'll help us next year, but I'm not going to crush the staff for not playing him earlier because there were definitely times where he was working off some rust in fall camp. Yeah. Nate Lemon is seeing his role increase on defense. He had a block punt against USC. McIntyre said they felt like Drew Lewis was starting to kind of wear down because he was playing basically every snap defensively. And so I think you're going to see a little bit more of an increased role for him. I've, well, there's only one game left this year, but I think even going into next year, Nate Lamb has shown, especially in those short yardage situations, that um, he's not going to get run over like we've seen from some of CU's other defensive players. Yeah, uh, I think it would be interesting to see if they start playing him outside a little bit as well because he's got good athleticism. See if you can maybe get him in a pass rushing situation because he does need to be on the field a little bit more than he has been. Uh, but he's played well, which is you know what you want to see from your true freshman. Dante Wigley, is he coming into his own? He uh, ranked as the second-best cornerback last weekend by Pro Football He's Focus. definitely improved quite a bit over the start of the year. You have to feel pretty good about him and Udofia moving forward, see if Joe Meese comes back. I mean, Isaiah Oliver, at this point, I think, is probably losing a little bit of luster with scouts. You know, he hasn't been healthy, which doesn't help. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to say that his injury, I want him to come back. Obviously, he is a first-round talent in my eyes, and if that's the case, you leave, but... Uh, it would be nice to have him back for this team could be pretty stout defensively next year. Some feel-good moments on senior day. Trent Headley proposes to his girlfriend. She says yes. Uh, right he's a walk us. <laughs> yeah, dude, That's that where our seats are right okay. there, yeah. He's uh, a walk-on linebacker that maybe not a lot of people know about. Derek McCartney gets to meet the cancer survivor that he basically saved. That very cool moment there. Um, Philip Lindsay, of course, wins the 2017 Buffalo Heart Award. Shocking revelation there. I said uh, in my 14 years covering the, the program, that's literally the least surprising thing that's ever happened. <laughs> yes, I would say that's probably true. Trent Hadley's girlfriend was a cheerleader too, by the way. Oh, cool. So just throwing that out there. So good for him. Uh, that was a pretty cool moment. Um, yeah, it's, I was surprised that McCarty had never met. Well, they have to wait two years to even find out the identity. That's wow. the main reason. Like, what's the... I don't know. Yeah, that seems kind of strange. I can't imagine getting that and not wanting to meet the person that saved your life. But Absolutely. I, don't, I guess I've never been in their shoes, so I can't say. What else do we have? Anything else? Oh, this is the thing that annoyed me the most in, in the USC game is Jawan Winfrey getting penalized for spinning the ball. And then I'm watching the Utah-Washington game this past weekend. And, you know, the Utah punter has that great yeah. fake. 
And all he does is spike the ball just in the ex- excitement, and they give him a 15-yard penalty. Yeah, Let these kids have some fun. Yeah, Come on. It's a joke. It really is. Like, and it, I forget what other game. In the Arizona-Oregon game, I think it was, they had a pick six, and the guy started chirping as he was walking into the end zone. They threw a flag and took the pit touchdown away. Jeez. <laughs> like, so, that's so ridiculous. The kid made a huge play in a game, and you're just going to take away a touchdown from him? Like, dude, football is supposed to be a competitive sport. It's supposed to be fun. You know, it's not dominoes at your local YMCA. Like, it's all right to talk a little noise. Like, it's going to be fine. Everyone will survive. I even saw one of the talking heads on TV the other day criticizing Miami for the turnover chain. It's like, seriously. Yeah, old people are lame. (laughs) So, that'll never change. But anyways, so looking ahead uh, at the bowl situation, you've got Arizona State and Oregon winning on Saturday. So, they're... The, the Pac-12 now has seven bowl-eligible teams with Stanford, Washington, Washington State, USC, and Arizona being the others. You've got Utah and Colorado obviously matching up both at five and six, so there'll be an eighth bowl-eligible team there. And then a ninth between Cal and UCLA, and they're set to match up. So you're going to have nine bowl-eligible teams in the conference. If CU does get that sixth victory in Salt Lake City, they won't get one of the traditional Pac-12 tie-ins. Those are going to be already locked up. So it would be an at-large bowl bid. Uh, Heart of Dallas Bowl, Quick Lane Bowl in Detroit, and uh, the Texas Bowl are three possibilities there. So are we going to Texas probably? Can't imagine. I would take that over Detroit. Detroit. Yeah, I can't imagine they would put us in Detroit. That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, I've seen Utah projected for that bowl in a couple spots. So that would be interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, two of these teams are obviously going to win. It'll, I would assume we would get the last possible selection. Probably. But it would be, as McIntyre likes to bring up a lot, it would be the first time back-to-back bowl years for the program since 0405 if they can pull it off. Yeah, if they go to Detroit, I'm not spending a whole lot of time there before the, the bowl game. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I spent. I did I already did my football trip to Michigan last year. <laughs> I think I'm good yeah. with that one. I was going to say there's too many bowl games if five and seven teams are earning bowl bids like last year. But if you look at it this year, it's different. Uh 70 of the 78 bowl slots have already been filled, and there's 17 programs that can still get to six wins at this point. Our ward, one of our posters on the board, also broke down the APR, and CU ranks 18th on that list in terms of APR, in terms of teams that could be in that 5-7 and seven range. So they're not getting in at 5-7. and seven. There's no. I don't even know if there's going to be any 5-7 and seven teams that get into a bowl game this year. Yeah, I'd have to look at the schedule that he put out just to – see how many of them were likely to win games, but I would assume eight of them will find a way, and you'll have yeah. at least full six and six. And then, yeah, but if CU does win at six and six as a power five, got to assume they're definitely in, though, right? Yeah, I would, I would have to think so. I mean, back-to-back years, they brought a really good crowd to San Antonio last year. That probably goes in our favor as well. How much of of an advantage you think it is for the Buffs having that extra week to, to prepare for the Utes? I mean, you'd think that Utah had to exert a lot of energy trying to upset the Huskies in Seattle. Yeah, I mean, that's what common sense would say, although we've been terrible coming off of a bye for as long as I can remember, so who really knows? Um, it should be an advantage. Obviously, you have another week of preparation. Utah hasn't had time to think about us until today, so it should be an advantage, but we have struggled in that situation in the past, so... Do you think the 10.5-point line with Utah, which I think surprises both of us, right? I mean, oh, yeah. I was thinking 6.5. Yeah, I was yeah somewhere in that touchdown range. What Do you think that's the fact that Utah almost beat 
upset Washington, or does that have more to do with uh, not having faith in Colorado to show up to this game? Um, I think it's mostly us, honestly, just because it's a bad matchup for us in terms of not being able to stop the run, uh, especially as a running quarterback. You know, Khalil Tate could have won the Heisman on our game alone, probably. So, yeah, that was not a whole lot of fun. Um, Washington has really not been playing very well, so I don't know if it has a whole lot to do with that. I mean, Utah should have won the game. <laughs> they decided to call a timeout for no reason whatsoever at the end of regulation instead of letting Washington run out the clock and go to overtime. And, of course, Washington said, okay, you want us to run plays? We'll, we'll run plays. And then kicked the a field goal to win the game. <laughs> yeah, I, Kyle Whittingham, you can make an argument, is the best coach in the Pac-12, but that was certainly not his finest moment. Uh, no. I can only imagine the board if we had to live through that timeout decision. <laughs> I was screaming at the team, like, what are you doing? And of course, they got screwed. Well, the largest margin of victory in the last six years between these two programs is seven points. So uh, even when CU struggled as a, you know, in terms of their season, I mean, they, they had the great upset victory there to break the long road losing streak and keep Utah from going to the Pac-12 championship game. Um, I, again, I don't understand how this is a 10.5 point spread just given the history between these two teams. Isaiah Oliver and Shea Fields are expected to play against the Utes. Ryan Muller's status is up in the air. McIndare sounds somewhat optimistic with Moeller, which sounds surprising because he was basically uh, using uh, – he needed crutches, didn't he, on yeah. senior day? Yeah, he was wearing crutches on his way out on the field for senior day. So that would be surprising. I honestly don't believe a single thing that he says in regards to injuries, though, because he's been lying to us all season. So I'll see – I'll believe it when I see it. Is Ryan Moeller really – I guess he's versatile enough that – it kind of throws – it makes you have to game plan a little bit more. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, there's a lot of guys who play that, that role similarly, I think, on this defense. I'm not sure it changes much. Isaiah Oliver said that he couldn't go in the second half basically because as he was trying to get back, he wasn't going full speed in practice, and then he was going full speed in the game, and that just kind of took a toll on his body. So he said the plan has been practicing at full speed here um, the last week and a half. So. Shea Fields, I would, he had the concussion, but it sounds like he's going to be back out there. Uh, unfortunately, Jonathan Van Deest, who is redshirting inside linebacker, uh, tore his ACL. And I heard there's another true freshman that suffered uh, a major injury as well. Going to get uh, the head coach on the record before uh, uh, saying anything there. But the, the tough break for Van Deest. This is a third straight November that he's yeah, uh, had surgery. We've had concerns about his how he was able to stay healthy, especially playing linebacker for his career. It's getting tougher and tougher. I mean, you can only have so many injuries before it's tough to come back. So I hope he finds a way, but as an undersized guy who's got an injury history, the odds don't look great. Well, the good thing with his injury is that it's a torn ACL, but there isn't other damage in there. You know, sometimes they go in there to operate and there's a cartilage damage or there's an MCL or something else messed up. Fortunately, uh, when they went in to fix his ACL. That was the only damage in there. So uh, McIntyre seems to think that he's going to be back full go by camp. That sounds like a super aggressive timeline. Yeah, especially for a guy who's had multiple ACL tears. John Van Deest hasn't had ACLs. Just He had shoulder issue, issues and arm issues. Oh, really? I thought, he had, yeah. I thought he had one other No, ACL this is really. his first lower body oh. deal. So. Okay, well then my bad. <laughs> uh, then Tim Lenat had the Achilles as well. So uh, both those guys obviously won't be out there during spring ball. The 2018 football schedule was released. Obviously, CSU again leading off the uh, schedule this year. They play at Nebraska. You mentioned that earlier, Tyler. Uh, they play New Hampshire at home, then have a bye week Friday game in Boulder versus UCLA. 
You get to Arizona State at home on family weekend on October 6th, then at USC, at Washington. Uh, you come back home against Oregon State for homecoming on October 27th. Then Arizona on Friday, November 2nd on the road. Another year where that Arizona trip comes a little bit later on the schedule. That's always good weather-wise uh, for it to cool off a little bit down there in the desert. They come back back-to-back home games against uh, Washington State in Utah, uh, before traveling to Berkeley on the final weekend of the regular season. I think that kind of scraps any dream of the Utah game being a, turning into a real rivalry, right? I guess. I mean, it's really just because there was a pre-existing agreement between BYU and Utah to finish their season 2018, so that's why they did it. But um, I don't know. We'll see. See how this season goes. It's always a close game. Maybe we'll be battling it out. It seems like they've had more recruiting battles against Cal than they have Utah. Yeah, lately for sure. I mean, I, we recruit California pretty heavily, especially Northern California, so that makes sense. Um, Utah obviously goes after a lot more poly kids, which we don't have much success with. But, yeah, um, 2018 will be interesting. I mean, you have a chance to go 5-0. and You know, you could obviously get on a pretty substantial run there to start the season if all things play out correctly. So then you get to finish with the last two at home. I'd say it's about as friendly a schedule as you're going to get. USC and Washington are on the road. You obviously prefer that, um, that those aren't really winnable games, but getting them at home is not really a winnable game either, and at least you still have home matchups you can take advantage of. Yeah. Um, Washington State has a ton of guys graduating, so they'll be a younger ball club next year. I, I think, honestly, the schedule is – I mean, there's no excuse next year not to win six games. And definitely two of their first four games are going to be against a first-year head coach and maybe three of the first five, depending on what – uh, ASU does with Todd Graham. It sounds like Scott Frost, it sounds, they're pretty confident in Lincoln that he's going get, to get the job there, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, they seem to feel pretty confident in it. We'll see how that plays out. I think he still wants to look at UCLA and Florida from what I hear. Okay. Where do you think UCLA goes in terms of their coaching search? <laughs> a lot of people have been saying Jeff Fisher, which would be amazing. <laughs> I would love for UCLA to have Jeff Fisher. They'd be the exact same team they are right now every single year. Six and six, and no one knows why. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of CU recruiting, roughly half the Buffalo's 2018 commit list is under siege right now, Tyler. I'm going to run down this list for you. Ohio State and Virginia Tech are after Walker Culver. He just visited Columbus last weekend, got an offer from the Buckeyes. Washington is after Dimitri Stanley. They want him as a defensive back. Cal is after Clyde Moore. It does sound, though, that he's not probably going to visit uh, Cal, but he's pretty solid with CU. But that's another guy that's being poached by another Power Five. Uh, with Daniel Arias, you've got Louisville, North Carolina, and Oklahoma talking to him. Washington State's after Tavafina. He was in Pullman last weekend for an official visit. You've got three SEC programs that are after Davion Taylor. Uh, he's going to visit all three, three of those schools that are after him. He's already taken his visit to CU, uh, so it doesn't look great there. You've got Boise State and Oklahoma State after Delrick Abrams Jr. He visited Boise State last weekend. I've got an update coming on him. Utah, Boise State, and Notre Dame are after Deion Smith. Hassan Hippolyte still hearing from Houston. Joshka Gustav is being quiet, but I've heard he's being recruited by others as well. That's a lot of guys right now that you've you, you got to feel a little nervous about. It, we're exactly a month before that early signing period begins. Yeah, and kind of interesting that Dylan Thomas, arguably our highest-rated commit, isn't on that list. Uh, he hasn't done a whole lot this senior year, so <laughs> it'll be interesting to see how that plays out for Colorado as well. And another top D-line target off the board. This is interesting, though. South Spina, 
He commits to Stanford track and field as a shot putter. He turns down football offers. Really? I mean, it's not the worst plan ever, right? Okay. <laughs> go to Stanford, throw a, a ball around for four years, get that education, go get a high-paying job somewhere, not have to beat up your body. Yeah. I just had no idea that that was an option. <laughs> Fair enough. D-line, I mean, we've how many times have we talked about the line Everything that can go wrong will go wrong. We're going to have a kid commit to play with Cross, even though he's 320 pounds here soon. <laughs> So that's that's what's interesting is keeping these commits on board and then trying to get a couple D linemen down the stretch here. Should we jump into the mailbag, Tyler? Let's do it. Jackson must ask, the 2018 class is pretty uninspiring. Looks like another year without any four-star slash blue chip recruits. Is this staff capable of winning big recruiting battles? Well, I think we're going to see if they're capable, right? If they can hold on to these commits because there are battles being taken place. It's just a little bit different when they're already on your commit list. It doesn't generate the same excitement as when you're in a top three or four down the stretch. I would say it should generate some excitement if we're able to keep Walker Culver and Delrick Abrams. Those are two big-time names. I think Daniel Arias, he's looking around, but I, I would honestly be surprised if he went elsewhere. But I think he's... He might not be a four-star, but he probably should be. Had a huge senior year, was really impressive in camp. I could see him being a really, really, really good college wide receiver. To his point, CU does rank number 46 nationally. Uh, you would have liked them to parlay that 10-win season a little bit more into maybe, I don't know, probably top 25 classes unrealistic. Yeah, somewhere right around 30 to 35 range, I think. But there is time, and we haven't obviously heard about a lot of new prospects because they don't recruit much in season this is kind of their stretch so we'll see if they you know come up with something they always seem to find a guy who's pretty highly recruited late somehow they do rank ahead of the arizona schools right now oregon state utah and surprisingly stanford but with stanford that's because they only have 10 commits um but it's been kind of a down year with recruiting the pac-12 overall aside from oregon which is ranking number six nationally ucla is the only other pac-12 team in the top 20 recruiting rankings right now and with the coaching change there, we'll see if they stay in the top 20. USC will, of course, surge. Yeah, but they, it always, hasn't been... they always finish really strong on signing day. That's just kind of their philosophy. They got, I think, seven four-stars on signing day last year. You can expect something similar to that this time around, too. All right. At Chris Sims asked, why does CU extend coaches before they earn it? We extend. They go backwards every time. One 10-win season does not equal an extension. We've talked about this. Uh, again, McIntyre's base salary ranks him 10th in the conference, and he was a unanimous coach of the year in 2016. You can have an issue with the way college football, the, the situation nationally of sure. coaches having to get extensions and always kind of maybe getting paid before they deserve it. But in this case, you certainly can't criticize CU, and that's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking going on. One 10-win season at Colorado does equal an extension whether you want to believe it or not, because it happened. <laughs> and uh, I think you could probably expect that moving forward in pretty much all situations. And to answer the question, uh, they extend coaches because if they don't, somebody else will. Now, the Dan Hawkins extension was bad because that was three games into a season, right? You probably could have been a little bit more patient there. Uh, to me, that's a much different situation than extending McIntyre after, after what he did last season. Yeah. Um, and then going back before that... The whole Gary Barnett thing, he he had the extension on his desk before the Iowa State game, didn't sign it, and then things fell apart. Um, I can't remember another example that would fall into why CU's continually extending coaches before they deserve it. 
Because it fits the argument. Okay. <laughs> At Unico, David Smith asked, how much more will we see Landman this week and in the future considering Gamboa and Lewis are both back? In short yard situations, I think you're going to see a lot of him going forward. Um, yeah, and I think next year you'll see him play a lot more too, whether they move him. I think they're going to try to have all three of those guys on the field more than they have this year. you got to get your most talented guys out there. You, I don't see Nate Landman as an outside linebacker, though. It's, I mean, you got to put him out there if you don't have guys that are – I mean, who do you see? I would, well, I would, well, I would put Drew Lewis there before I would put – Well, fine, Landman. either way. Well, however you want to do it, that's fine. But you got to get all three of those guys out there because there just isn't enough outside linebacker talent to warrant one of those dudes sitting down. I mean, there's certainly a possibility, too. It's, it's rare to go through an entire season with both inside linebackers staying 100% healthy. Yeah. Um, so that might just kind of work itself out. At William Bonnie 2 asked, with having had two weeks to prepare for Utah, doesn't this become a coach's win or loss? Shouldn't we expect some offensive wrinkles? More so than another week, I think you want to see some more wrinkles because you had that extra yeah. prep time. Yeah, yeah. I definitely would like to see some wrinkles, but I mean, at the end of the day, you can't make guys catch wide open touchdowns. So at the end of the day, the players have to do their job too. I mean, you can try to blame it on the coaches all you want, but the players are on the field. They have to make plays also. All right. At Avs 90-27, Lionel asked, what's going on with Kyle Evans not playing this year? Well, Philip Lindsay has proven that he can be a workhorse to carry the ball somewhere between 20 and 40 times in a game. Uh, and Kyle Evans had the uh, hip issue. Which put him behind the eight ball. It's pretty Yeah, simple. I mean, he's coming back from injury, and why would you not give Phil Lindsay the ball every time? I think it's really the simplest way to do it. Like, if he's not hurt and or tired, he should be the guy carrying the rock on every single play. It will be interesting, though. I think uh, you expect Alex Fontenot, who's redshirting right now, to be the feature back in 2017, but it's, or 2018, sorry. It's not out of the realm of possibility that Kyle Evans could win that job. No, not at all. If he comes back healthy, for sure. I mean, or they could just use three different guys. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all if on different series you saw Fontenot, you saw Kyle Evans, you saw Donovan Lee, you saw... Bo uh, Bichirette. Bo Bichirette, yeah. yeah. Even uh, Darian Hagan, there was a quote in one of Brian Howell's story. It seemed like he was kind of conceding that they will go back to more of a rotation. I would like to see it more riding with the hot hand, though. Before they, they started riding Philip Lindsay last season, they had this rotation with running backs where they would almost like switch series to series, and it never seemed like the running backs could get into a rhythm that way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to go with a hot hand in-game. I mean, because you get – a lot of the time a guy gets seven yards because the hole's open. I mean, like if it would have been somebody else in there, he might have too. It's just hard to be like, all right, he's really seeing what's going on out there based on two or three plays. At Hollywood, T9 asked, how many scholarships do we have left to give? Who are we favored to land? So right now there are 18 commits, but like I mentioned, tons of other schools coming after these these uh, commits. And they've got two 2017 signees that are gray shirting and 17 scholarship seniors on the roster. So they've already kind of over the extended themselves in terms of the numbers, but that happens every single recruiting cycle because you're you're banking on a little bit of attrition. That always happens. Um, I would say they're probably with those 18 commits. In addition to that, they could probably sign maybe two, maybe three more. Yeah, but it's going to be more about keeping those guys on board than anything. Yep. Yeah, I mean they're not going to get above 20. I'd be surprised by the, if they were able to get above 20 this year. 
Um, and obviously they need to get a couple D linemen there, maybe even a, a safety, another safety in this class. Uh, but aside from that, they're pretty much filled up. It's just trying to fend off the vultures a little bit. In terms of who are we favored to land, um, again, that's something we'll probably keep on buffstampede.com as we, again, it's only a month until that early signing period. So yeah, I'll be out in Salt Lake City covering the Utah game. But aside from that, it's going to be a lot of recruiting coverage on the site here in the coming weeks. So uh, definitely be tracking that as close as possible. Tyler, before we get into some happy basketball talk, Following the Paradise Jam, uh, let's get your updated Pac-12 football power rankings. All right, so shocking revelation here again: Oregon State is last. <laughs> they seem to have given up. Which I thought they were going to get one. <laughs> yeah, conference. I thought they were kind of right the mojo from the interim situation. <laughs> they, but yeah, that was not a great performance last week, and I think they're pretty pretty done. It's Vegas really wanted them to get that W. They kept giving them those single digit spreads, and I'm sitting here like, okay. I'm, Sure, you're obviously seeing something that I don't. And then, of course, they get blown out by 30 pretty much every single time. Cal, um, rivalry game with Sanford last week actually looked pretty good. Kept the game close, had a chance to win down the stretch. But at the end of the day, I think it's fair to say they're the second-worst team in the conference this year right now. So they're at number 11 for me. Colorado's at 10. Um, It's really hard to put them above anybody else at this point. You know, they have a chance to move up against Utah this upcoming week. Uh, but to me, there's a pretty clear-cut separation between them and everybody else in the league at this point. Uh, the next grouping, 9, 8, and 7, I have three that are you could pretty much interchange. Depending, You could give me arguments for all, and I would agree with them. Utah, Oregon, and UCLA. Um, Utah obviously probably should have beat Washington last week. They've been playing a little bit better now that Tyler Huntley is healthy. But at the end of the day, they have two conference wins. One was against Arizona without Khalil Tate, and the other one was against UCLA without Josh Rosen. So... It's hard to really say they've accomplished much, honestly, so that's why I have them the lowest down at number nine. Uh, Oregon, big win last week. Obviously, um, they're starting to come into their own a little bit, especially now that they got their quarterback healthy. If he had been healthy all year, I think they probably would have been higher up on this list for sure. Defense starting to come into its own a little bit. Got a good win against Arizona, so they moved up quite a bit for me this week. Um, UCLA is the hardest one to rank on this list, honestly, because with Josh Rosen, they're pretty solid. Uh, had a chance to beat USC this weekend. Without Josh Rosen, they're a complete dumpster fire. Um, and a lot of the games they've lost this year were without Rosen healthy, so it's hard to really pinpoint exactly where they would be for me. Um, I have Arizona State at six. Fairly solid team. I think definitely exceeded expectations this year. Uh, you know, hard to really get a gauge on them from week to week, though. A couple blowouts one way or the other. Uh, but their offense is definitely clicking quite a bit lately. If you're the AD there, do you give Todd Graham uh, another year? Um, I mean, I would say you probably have to. They weren't expected to make a bowl this year, and they did, so it's progress. I mean, obviously it's not what you expect from ASU, but they were better than anticipated this year, so hard to really argue against that. I know if they have Arizona this week, if they find a way to win that game, I, mean, I, think they, I think you got to keep they them if finish, they win that game. They yeah. finished second in the Pac-12 South, right? I mean, <laughs> that's. I think that would probably get the job done. It would have to, I would think. Um, I do have Arizona right ahead of them right now. They're fifth. Uh, they've definitely come back to earth a little bit in the last few weeks. Goyle Tate, people seem to be, have been figuring him out a little bit. Uh, a lot of turnovers in that game against Oregon. Uh, so we'll see how they finish up the year. 
actually have Washington at four this week. They've really been struggling <laughs> of late. Um, you could that Washington, Stanford, and Washington State grouping is all pretty tight. Obviously, Stanford just beat Washington. Uh, Washington State just beat Stanford. Washington is pretty heavy favorite against Washington State, so it's hard to really gauge that out. Washington's been playing the worst over the last few weeks of those teams, though. Um, I have Stanford third. Washington State just beat them. So that was obviously the determining factor there. And if Washington State wins the game next week, they're the team going to the Pac-12 championship game. Uh, And if Washington beats Washington State, then Stanford goes. So that whole trio right there is pretty tightly contested. And I have have USC first. Uh, Really solid bounce back second half of the year since that Notre Dame drubbing. They've been looking pretty solid. Uh, UCLA game was probably not the most beautiful game you've ever seen in your life, but controlled most of the game throughout. So I don't think anybody's playing better football right now than USC in the Pac-12. All right. Basketball, 5-0. Yeah, pretty good. (laughs) I'll take that any day of the week. Wasn't expecting that going into the year, even though, to be fair, they haven't played anybody great. Mercer's a pretty good team, senior heavy, very experienced. I was not surprised to see CU be an underdog in that game. I was surprised to see them win. So that's obviously huge, but the other four opponents, you probably have to win those games if you want to have confidence moving forward in the Pac-12 play. But still, I mean, this is a young group, and they're going to trip up at some point um, getting... You know, getting a five-win head start is pretty nice. I mean, that's what you want to see from this young group. And I think what's especially the most impressive is that they, at the end of games, they have really found a way to tie things down and not have turnovers, actually make free throws down the stretch, which we never see this team do ever. You know, this team historically has been a team that chokes leads at the end. And so far this year, they really seem to be doing a great job down the stretch last four minutes of games. Yeah, you'd probably say of their five games, three of them are impressive performances. Um, and, yeah, you get a little lucky against Quinnipiac. And, uh, yeah, a little lucky, yeah. <laughs> Quite, very lucky. <laughs> George King, he decided to join the party on Sunday. 25 points in CU's 79-70 to Paradise Jam title game win over Mercer. I think if you expect... George King to just play consistently, you're going to set yourself up for right, yeah. disappointment. But I want him to, though, because he can be that good every night. It's not even really about him scoring 25 points and making all of his shots. It's just the aggressiveness. He can't just take large stretches of games off. Like If this offense is struggling, he needs to be the guy that's attacking the rim or taking those shots. Now, I, everyone knows it's not always going to go in. We get that. But he needs to be the guy trying to get people out of those ruts. McKinley Wright was the tournament MVP. He's averaging 15 points, 4.6 assists, 4.1 rebounds, and shooting 55% from the field. Uh, it's, I think it's going to get to a point with McKinley Wright where kind of like we got to with Philip Lindsay where there's just nothing you can say after mm-hmm. a point because he's just going to continually get praise. It's going to get there faster than it did for Phil, too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's going to be one of the best CU players ever. I honestly believe that. He's not. It's just not going to get worse. I mean, he's going to have nights where he struggles shooting the ball because he has a little bit of a quirky jumper. Uh, but he's just a freak athlete. And unlike George we were talking about earlier, if the ball's not going in, he's going to find a way to get other guys involved. He's active on defense. He's just a bulldog. He gets to the rim. He knows how to get other guys open. He's going to make everybody on this team that much better. He's a special player. I had King ahead of him in my preseason top buffs. But I think it's pretty clear McKinley Wright already this team's best player. Yeah, I don't even remember if I 
If we do, we do that this year. We did it on the podcast. Yeah, uh, I have to look through it. I forget what order. I'm sure I have George first too. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I mean it's just tough, especially because I haven't seen McKinley play in a game. It's tough to you know see where he's going to go. But yeah, I think McKinley at this point has proven to be, if not the best, the most important player on this team. They have not shot all that well from beyond the arc. But if I told you before the season that five games into the season, George King would be shooting 58 percent. Naaman Wright, 48%. DeLeon Brown, 50%. Torrey Miller-Stewart, 65%. Lucas Seward, 53%. Deshaun Schwartz, 47%. And I'd mentioned McKinley Wright, 55%. What would you have said? I would have said this team is going to be 5-0. I <laughs> wish they are. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what's this is what we talked about before the season. There was going to be two ways this three-point shooting situation they had going on was going to go. One, they were going to all take quality shots. Or two, people would get frustrated and... Look at that. I and mean, we talk about all the time, okay, Tori, maybe don't shoot fadeaway three-pointers, you know? Like, let's take some quality shots. Those usually go in a lot more. And when your whole team does that, the percentages look like that. That's why bas- basketball is sometimes really easy. Like, if you, if you don't pass up the wide-open looks and take those, usually it works out pretty well for you numbers-wise. Yeah, Dom Collier and Tyler Bay are struggling in terms of shooting percentage. Collier just 6 of 24 shooting. You know, with Dom, I think it's just – Time to lay off. He is what he is. I mean, he's interestingly, this plus minus has been pretty good in pretty much all of the games. And his defense has been okay outside of the foul trouble as well. So, I mean, yeah, he has not played well, there's no doubt. And he's pretty frustrating. I mean, because he just doesn't seem like he's gotten a lot better. But we'll see if it starts to click for him. I mean, and if not, it, that's fine. We have guys that can play that position. So, Teams are shooting just 37.6% against the Buffs. Obviously, a lot of that has to do with the quality of opponent. But I think it shows you this team is at least bought in and could be a middle-of-the-pack 12 defensive type team. Yeah, and I, I mean, the quality of opponent's not great, but one of the things that most of those opponents can do is shoot the ball. I mean, Drake is a team that shoots the ball extremely well. Um, they're not going to be great defensively, and they're not going to attack the rim on you or anything, but they are a great shooting team. So to see us, you know, they ended up with 81, but a lot of that was – garbage time we're you know trying to catch up points uh, this defense has been a lot better than anticipated and you have five guys on a string that's a dumb basketball term that people don't understand but basically you can have five athletic guys guarding but if they're not guarding together it's not going to be successful it's really the most important thing about defenses are yeah. you supposed to be where you're are you at where you're supposed to be every time down lucas seward suffered a severe ankle sprain in the second round game of the paradise jam Missed the final game. Dallas Walton got a little run in his absence. It sounds like uh, they expect him back within uh, a couple weeks, but they're probably going to be without out him with, with these next two games against Air Force and Colorado State. Yeah, what's nice is the schedule is pretty elongated right now. They don't have a game for six days, so he, he's probably going to miss a little bit of time, but if there was a time to have it happen, this is pretty good timing for it. Air Force at home. If CU doesn't get too big for their britches and shows up, we'll, they'll take care of Air Force. Uh, they usually match up with Air Force pretty well. Uh, that CSU game, if he misses that one, though, that's going to be tough, which it sounds like he will. Vin Buff fan 33 asked, after these first few basketball games, what are the biggest positive and biggest negative takeaways so far? Biggest positive has to be that this is a team, right? Yeah. Ted Wilson said there's no hidden agendas. No. Wink, wink. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. This is just a fun basketball team. Mm-hmm. And you, you get the sense that they genuinely like each other. Right. They want to play together. They want to be better for each other. Stuff that I mean, we talked about it so much last year, but until you really see it happen, it's hard to really pinpoint what's happening on the court, you know? 
And it, yeah, this is just a much more fun brand to get up and down. It's a young group that wants to be there. Yeah, it's that's probably the biggest positive and the fact that they're closing games out extremely well, which is very shocking for a young basketball team. It would it would have not have been surprising or I mean it would be hard to be disappointed if these kids struggled to close games. They haven't done it before. But yeah, this I mean, I don't know, negatively there's not a whole lot you can say. I mean they're five and oh, it's a young club and they haven't shot the ball great. They haven't rebounded the ball great. I guess those yeah. are two things or shot the three point ball, I guess I should say. Great. Yeah. That's what I said, shooting, three-point shooting. I think rebounding will likely be an issue against bigger Pac-12 opponents once they get in the conference play. And then yeah. the Buffs are turning the ball over too much. Rank last in the conference in turnover margin and assist-to-turnover ratio. So they got to get better there. Yeah, standard for Tad Boyle teams, though. Um, I will say there was what the one game that I was able to go so, so far this year. They did have a negative turnover-to-assist ratio, but they still are moving the ball a lot better. They just finished a lot on drives at the end of it. So it's not, it's most of the time your sister turnover ratio does say, are you moving the rock? But I didn't feel like there was any selfish play going on in the game that I was able to watch live. So it might just be a little more of a philosophical thing in terms of they're, they're, they are attacking the rim a lot more so far this year, which leads to less assists. Yeah. And McKinley, right, as great as he is, he is still a true freshman and, and he's somebody that can make some pretty spectacular plays. So you're going to take some chances. Oh, yeah. We had a question from at Rumblin Buffalo. Lazar Nikolic, is he a thing or not? I don't want to crush the kid, but honestly, I don't really think so. His foot speed is pretty suspect, and he can't really get around guys that we've played so far that are all less than Power 5 teams. Uh, so I, I'll be interested to watch him play against some Pac-12 guards. But yeah, I don't, he has time to get better, obviously, and I'm surprised they didn't just redshirt him. He can rebound the ball pretty well. He does some other things pretty solid. But defensively and just getting around guys, I think it's going to be an issue for him. But with his size and versatility, he he gives you some flexibility in your rotation, right? Yeah, and he can shoot. So, I mean, if they move him off the ball a little bit more, there are going to be times where he can hit some buckets. But, yeah, as a, as a lead guard, I don't know if that's really going to pan out. P.A. Buff asked, where does Tyler CCU's chances with his next set of three the Air Force, CSU, New Mexico combo. Can we sweep? Will the Rams be that tough at Moby? Uh, CSU is a good team that has not played very well so far this year, so it's hard to really figure out what you're going to get from there. Um, in my preview piece, I said going 2-1 and one in this stretch would be a win. I still feel like that's the case. Um, you obviously can't go 0-3. That would be disastrous. Even 1-2 and 2 would be a disappointment with two of those home games at, at home, and Air Force should be a game that you win. So you're just trying to split those other two. Uh, New Mexico is okay. You have that at home, um, especially if Seward is back and healthy at that point. It's a game you should probably win. So, yeah, you can sweep. I mean, CSU has been struggling, and we have won in Moby plenty of times before. Uh, if they come out of that 8-0, you have to feel really good about what this team is doing. And then they have a four-game stretch to close non-conference. That's really going to get them ready for Pac-12 play. A lot of tough opponents in there. So we try to set the expectations and temper them for this basketball team, given its youth going into the season. Ted Boyle is not really doing that. He loves his basketball team, and he's yeah. not shy about that. Uh, at what point could you theoretically start talking NCAA tournament with this, this basketball team? Um, they're going to have to go 10-2 and two in the non-conference, probably. You... Right now, the schedule is really light, but at the end of the non-conference, I would assume it's going to be pretty solid nationally because they close the season with Xavier, Iowa, South Dakota State, 
and somebody that I'm blanking on right now who are all really solid. Some are top 100 teams. Um, if you can get a road win at CSU, that's huge. Anytime you can get road wins in non-conference play, now obviously you won three neutral court games. So those are all big too, even though they're against inferior opponents. Uh, that Mercer one is going to be big, but you got to find a way to beat a tournament quality team in there as well, which is going to be tough because you have Iowa and Xavier both away from home. So still keep the, the foot on the brake. Yeah, non-conference is tough because if you go, it doesn't matter how good your non-conference is. If you're not at least 500 in Pac-12 play or in conference play, most of the time that doesn't get you in. So it's non-conference can tell you a few things, and it's an opportunity to get some real resume bullet points. But if you don't finish that season up with solid Pac-12 play, it's not going to matter. CU's women's cross-country team finished third, and the men finished eighth at the NCAA cross-country championships in Kentucky on Saturday. A little bit of a disappointment. The women's cross-country team was ranked number one going into that event. Um, but, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and hammer the yeah. cross-country. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't know anything about cross-country or how it works, but... Based on the coach, he said, yeah, the two teams that were ahead of us, I was worried about all season. So maybe it's not the biggest surprise of all time. I'll be, I will uh, be out in Salt Lake City on Saturday. And it uh, could be a really joyous postgame or a really depressing one, given given the result of the yeah, game. Yeah, I'll be probably off the board for a while if we lose this game. Uh, five and seven is going to send some people off the rocker. And uh, it's understandable. Not making a bowl game with this team is definitely a disappointment. All right, well, we will uh, have a lot to talk about on our next show, win or lose out in Salt Lake City. Thanks for tuning in.